You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a Book with Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. The podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. So here we are in season two and episode two of the podcast. We are going to discuss superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet with Gail Pooley, which he co-authored with Marion Tupi. I'll start by providing a little background on how I came across the book it's a little more personal than it would typically be. I was exposed to the book from the COSM conference that is put on by Discovery Institute with the band leader of, I'm sure it'll come up during a discussion, George Gilder, who we've had on the podcast to discuss life after Google. Just a quick side note and disclaimer, I've since joined the board of Discovery because I just love their work and I like to have a tie to my hometown in Seattle where they're based. George had mentioned Marion and Gail's work a couple times over the last few years. I had the pleasure of listening to Marion Tupi introduce their work about time prices at the 2022 COSM conference recently. So I, I want to give a little background and introduction to Gail before we start discussing the book with him. To give readers some background on Gail, he's an associate professor of business management at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Gail earned his bachelor's degree in economics at Boise State, did his graduate work at Montana State University, and his PhD at the University of Idaho. Dr. Pooley is a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute and serves on the board of humanprogress.org. He also serves on the Foundation for Economic Education Faculty Network and is a scholar with Hawaii's Grassroots Institute. He is also a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. Gail, I'm really excited to be visiting with you today. I guess my first question is, how did you and Marion originally meet? And then also what inspired your, you guys to do your work together? First of all, it's great to be here. Thanks, Cole, for the invitation. Yeah, so I actually met Marion on Twitter. So thank heavens for Twitter. He had written this article about the Simon Ehrlich bet. And as economists, that bet is a very well-known kind of wager about commodity prices back in the 1980s. So he writes this article. So I reached out to him. I said, hey, this article is really great. He just used money prices. And I said, have you ever thought about using time prices to analyze things. And so we talked back and forth, back and forth, and pretty soon we came up with this way to measure these basic commodities. We ended up picking 50 basic commodities that are tracked by the World Bank, and we wrote this paper. And part of that is we developed this thing called the Simon Abundance Index, which measures global resource abundance based on the time price of these commodities and population growth. And we published this paper together at Cato. When we published this paper, Cato said, would you like to have somebody come and speak uh, with you about your paper? And I said, well, you know, if I had the wish, I'd love to have George Gilder come and talk about it. And so they invited George to come. So I got to meet George Gilder. 
uh, for the first time at this event that we held at Cato, where we introduced the paper and talked about the paper. So that's kind of the story, the background story. Then, then the book came out of the paper. People read the paper and said, wow, you should think more about this. Is there anything else you can analyze? And we said, we got lots of stuff we could look at. So that's kind of how I met Marion and also met George and how the book got started. So you started the book by explaining that humans like the apocalypse or just this kind of idea of end times, if you will, and the idea of degeneration. Can you explain some of this? Yeah. So actually, Marion's my co-author. So uh, he wrote a lot of the narrative. I was kind of the numbers guy. Marion's the word guy. But Mm -hmm. let me see if I can kind of elaborate on the the apocalypse stuff. Really, as, as we become more prosperous, an interesting thing about human beings, they have to look harder and harder for problems. And it's almost like we've got to almost have this simulation that there is this great apocalypse coming. And so this rise in these very dystopian kinds of movies, as we become more prosperous, there's more of these dystopian movies. So we did this analysis of apocalypse and uh, some other words, and we found that, wow, this, this is interesting. People are becoming more and more prosperous, more safe, more healthy. They live longer, but they seem to be more and more concerned about end times or, or just that things are going to collapse. Human psychology really kind of lends that because we tend to be, we have this bias against things that could be a threat to us. If I'm walking along on a trail and I hear some noise in a bush, it could be a rabbit or it could be a rattlesnake. Well, if I, if I run and it turns out to be a rabbit, I'm, I'm still alive. I'm okay. But mm-hmm. if it turns out to be a rattlesnake and I run, I'm also alive. But if I think, well, it's just a rabbit, it turns out to be a rattlesnake, I'm dead. So this survival bias of people who are kind of paranoid, we tend to look back and say, well, the people that were kind of excessively worried about things are the people that survived. So we kind of have this built-in bias to be much more concerned about a threat than grateful for an abundance. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you quote, you and Marion early in the book, you quote an interpretation of Polybius, and I think he goes through this kind of a monarchical structure from good to bad, and then he goes through an oligarchical structure from good to bad, and then he gets to a, like a democratic structure, and he says, the hopes of the dependent masses fuel an intensifying competition among their political patrons, transforming democracy into mob rule, perhaps better described as rule by demagogues. This tournament of demagogues rages among a narrowing field of popular leaders until a single champion arises victorious, dragging political society back to some form of monarchy, thus completing the cycle, end quote. We have a presidential election coming up in two years. I mean, doesn't the typical cynic that's looking for, you know, to your point, problems, just look and say, you know, their view is that, oh, this is, this is how it's going to happen. We're going to ruin this. And yet things never fall apart as many in, say, our country would argue politically. Yeah, that's really interesting because part of our book is we really see this threat to thinking about abundance, both from the left and the right. When, when the Democrats are in power, the Republicans obsess about on how bad things are going. When, when the Republicans are in power, the Democrats obsess on it. So you get this, this echo chamber from both the left and the right that are just, you know, attempting to try to undermine and distract people's attention away from from really how, how well we're all doing, in spite of almost uh, the political problems that we, we deal with. Yeah, and to kind of touch on, your, I'll use the right side of it, because you also mentioned that, you know, from the Judeo-Christian perspective, you know, there are end times. 
And I think, you know, I'm thinking about the right perspective of this. And isn't it always the crazy uncle or family member that pipes up about end times? And again, that's probably the cynic that you don't want to, you know, model your life after because it is your crazy uncle. <laughs> we never judge the judges, I guess, is one way of putting it. It's not my crazy uncle. It's my crazy niece. It's, it's almost <laughs> shifted to, it's like these young people. Uh, it's like, wow, you have never lived in a more prosperous time, but you seem so depressed about, I don't know, if, whatever, but why are you so depressed? And why don't you be optimistic like uh, like Uncle Eddie about, you know, how, how much better life is today than it was when he was your age? So, yeah, it's a weird thing that we also felt like it was important to to kind of push back on this narrative that young people are, are being uh, bombarded with today with respect to this climate crisis that, wow, we have this climate crisis. It's caused by CO2. CO2 is a consequence of fossil and it's a consequence of people, too many people. It kind of all comes back. We have too many people on the planet. So part of what we thought was, look, we, we have an antidote here. If you're really serious about the facts, take a look at these facts. And it's like, look, we might have these challenges. There's no uh, lack of challenges that we have as human beings, but we seem to have the capacity to adapt and to innovate through those challenges. And that's that's part of what we're, we're hoping to be able to communicate in the book. And you guys do a good job of that because, you know, I'm, I'm looking through here through my notes. You point out there are incredible positive forces propelling human progress forward, looking back for particularly the last 200 years, incomes, life expectancies, and the quality of life all explain this. However, you point out that it is easier to compile a list of global trends that are worsening than those that are improving. Is it, you know, if we're trying to think of structurally, what's the problem with human thinking on this? Is it just that we have to continue to focus our time on problems, but we don't ever say, oh, by the way, these are the smallest problems we've had ever? You know, I think part of it is, Hans Rosling wrote this book here a couple of years ago, Factfulness. I think he, he laid the case out very clear, very concise that, look, you've got to put things in context. He offered 10 kind of rules of thumb. Mm -hmm. And uh, that book, by the way, Bill Gates uh, gave a free copy to every person who graduated from college that year. So he, he also recognizes that, look, you've got to look at these problems in context compared to what the two questions we always ask in economics are when someone offers a policy uh, idea. It's like, well, first one is compared to what? You know, what does that compare to? Uh, show me the trade-offs that we're going to have to make to pursue that. And then the second question is, then what happens? What is the consequence? So context and consequence are two things that part of critical thinking really helps you to develop. And that's an area where I think we're, we're lacking in helping young people to really think in context and think in consequence. And when you do that, you suddenly have this different perspective on on the way that you look at these facts. Facts need to be put into context for them to really be understood. And if someone controls the, the narrative on the context, they can make these facts appear to be, you know, very negative or, or very positive. So Yeah, so let's go into that because you have a great fact early in your book that I just don't ever hear. And I don't hear ever hear it from people, no matter what political part of the world they come from. So you point out that climate obviously is a huge focus, as you mentioned earlier, of this problem list. And that at the same time, this interesting stat in your book, quote, between 1982 and 2016, for example, the global tree canopy cover increased by an area larger than Alaska and Montana combined, end quote. 
The only other person, Gail, in full disclosure, I've ever heard mention anything like that or even reference that is actually Mark Mills, who we've had on for his book, The Bottomless Well, and we'll expect to have on during this season for his book, The Cloud Revolution. He pointed out that we have more trees in America today than when the pilgrims hit Plymouth Rock, for example, okay? And yet nobody, when they scream bloody murder about the climate, or even the people that don't think it's an issue at all say, by the way, aren't we such an awesome society for what we've done to fix our problems like that? <laughs> yeah, you know, the guy that I think really has gone into that deeper is a guy by the name of Matt Ridley. He's somebody that would be good to have on your program as well. He's the guy who did the research on this, and he says, look, you know, you get these benefits. If you have more CO2, if you have a warmer climate, it's much easier to grow food. And if you mm-hmm. can grow more food, the price is going to get cheaper, which means that abundance for the poorest people on the planet, they're going to be the prime beneficiaries of more abundant food. So this benefit that we get with a warmer climate clearly has to be weighed in context with the challenges of greater CO2. So putting those things into context is, is a key part of really scientific thinking. So we're hopeful that the People think about that as well. You point out what the Enlightenment brought and the 19th century started to doubt. Hegel argued for a holistic view of progress coming into the norm. Um, I guess my question is, is this tension between progress and their doubters a requisite or does this just impede progress, if that makes sense? Yeah, the challenge with progress is it doesn't happen for everybody at the same time. Sure. You know, so you'll you'll have an innovation that occurs. I re, I remember the first microwave ovens that came out, and it's like they're five hundred bucks. I had to work. I really really wanted one. <laughs> this nineteen eighty because I thought, wow, I can have my burrito in <laughs> three minutes instead of thir- instead of thirty minutes. So, honey, let's go let's go get one of these microwaves. Well, it took me like sixty hours of work to buy the thing. Sure. And you know, within I mean, today you can buy one at Walmart for under a hundred dollars. It's you know, for three or four hours of work, I can have one of these devices. So the future in progress comes, but it doesn't come to everybody at the same time. So you'll have this lag between people who are enjoying this leading edge of progress, and then everybody else, because so many of these products are they're really knowledge based products. So the marginal cost to create the next unit it tends to decline. So Look, between the rich and poor, I always say the, the difference between rich and poor is about five to 10 years. Because if you have something today, if someone who's wealthy has something today, give yourself five to 10 years and you'll have it as well. Your incomes are going to go up, that price is going to go down, and you're going to enjoy that as well. So that's the kind of the pushback about people who have trouble with progress in our mind is, look, are you in favor of of having a certain portion of the population enjoying this progress today and everybody else has it in 10 years? Or do you want to stop progress so we don't have this difference in in wealth or income? So I think we've got to be open to this idea of let people innovate. We recognize there's going to be some inequality of this, this progress, but it's going to lift all of us. Watch what it's doing over time. You say there are rational grounds for cautious optimism when thinking about you know, everything you've written, but optimism should not be confused with inevitability. I think I understand what you're saying uh, when you stated this, but do you, can you unpack that just a little more? Yeah, I think you know, the issue is we see these really strong trend lines. You know, are they just kind of some fundamental uh, part of reality that will continue to get better? No, what we argue is there are essential elements 
things that had to be in place in order to, to get this innovation thing happening. And that is, uh, by and large, human freedom. Do people have more time and freedom to be able to pursue their ideas? And then access to resources. Can they talk with other people? Can they read other people's writings? So do they have access to, to information? And are there markets where they can go test their ideas out? And most innovations are really someone coming up with a new way to combine capitals. We define capital is anything that you can use to create something of value. So mm-hmm. there's human capital, financial capital, cultural capital, intellectual capital. You think about the iPhone, and it represents kind of all these capitals. You have physical capital there. There's six ounces of matter, but you also have human capital that went into designing it, assembling it. You had intellectual capital that went into the patents uh, and the concepts. You had financial capital that was necessary to fund Apple and then fund the customers who buy it. You also had this culture, this culture, uh, you know, the the Silicon Valley culture that said, look, we're going to let these people try these things. You know, the product came out of California. It didn't come out of Syria. It didn't come out of Russia. It came out of culture that really encouraged entrepreneurship and was very accommodating to testing and failure. And then you also have markets where these ideas get to go to get tested to see if you really have created some something valuable. Is this really a valuable new knowledge that you've discovered? And so those pieces have to be in place for this process to continue. So it's not inevitable if you remove one or more of those pieces in this equation, then this process stops and, and might reverse. So early in the in the book, you you guys use this Thanos analogy from Avengers, which I was going to ask you first off, was that you or Marion that got really gigged out on Avengers? Uh, you asked me. <laughs> okay, okay. You know. So that's good to know because I because I, I was going to ask you this. So two things I'd love you to do: can you introduce? You know, I, I, everybody knows who he is, but I want to make sure we we contextualize it. So can you explain Thomas Malthus, who he was and what he believed, and then use that as kind of the starting point to your Thanos analogy? Okay, so you start with you start with Thomas Malthus. He writes his book, seventeen ninety eight, about the uh, principle of population. It was this essay that he'd written, and he basically said, "Look, uh, people grow uh, geometrically. You know, uh, there's this exponential growth of people, but food can only grow linear. Exponential is one, two, four, eight, sixteen. You know, it's doubling, but linear is one, two, three, four. So he draws these kind of." I mean, he conceptualizes these two lines, this kind of linear line and then this exponential line, this population. He says the gap between the two is going to cause a civilization to collapse. And he, had, he was very kind of confident in his model. This is an example of kind of early on of a model that was uh, put on the table. And based on this model, he was able to say, well, we've got to, we've got to stop population. And you know, otherwise, we're all going to we're all going to uh, uh, collapse. So he began to shift that thinking. It was picked up by other authors, you know, uh, subsequent to his writing. And so you get this kind of sense that that we have overpopulation, where we have this resource scarcity, we're going to have mm-hmm. these difficulties. And through the 1800s, you see it picked up. The 1900s, it, I mean, the 1900s, you kind of see it happen. And then uh, early on in the uh, 20th century, you start seeing it again, the eugenics movement. You see these other uh, 
writers pick up on it. 1968, you see this book, uh, The Population Bomb, that gets that gets uh, published. And um, that was a really interesting book because that's the book that kind of got Julian Simon uh, started with his work. Uh, but 1973 is actually the year that you had uh, you know, we're going to kind of have this collapse. It was the year that Club of Rome published this book, Limits to Growth. It's the year that Soylent Green came out, this movie about end times. And interesting, it was a science fiction movie about the year 2022 that we're going to have this collapse. But that was also the year, actually, that Thanos was introduced in the Marvel comic uh, books. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Thanos was kind of part of this culture, this there was a thing in the culture in the 60s and 70s about we're going to collapse. And Malthus was right. And we have a model that says going forward, we're going to have this collapse. So fast forward to uh, the movie uh, when it comes out, uh, he makes this statement. He says the universe is finite, which we you know, we tend to look at the Earth and say, yeah, it looks like the Earth is finite. There are a fixed mm-hmm. number of atoms on this planet. So you are, you are correct that the planet has a fixed number of atoms. And, but then the second part of his statement, he says, and resources are finite. That's where he was wrong. Resources are not finite. And this is our, this is our reasoning, is that we have atoms, but it's when you add knowledge to atoms, that's when they become resources, so it's really knowledge that makes things valuable. And we don't see any kind of an upper limit on this discovery and, and creation and growth of knowledge. So resources are clearly not limited. If, if Thanos, and then he goes on to say, therefore, essentially, uh, you know, if life uh, isn't checked, life will cease to exist. So his plan was, I got to go out and do this Malthusian thing and destroy half the life in the universe, otherwise we're going to have this collapse. Well, our argument is, look, if resources are really finite, why do they become more and more abundant every year? And at the same time, you know, why is that happening? And as you delve into it as well, it's because of knowledge. Well, where does knowledge come from? It comes from human beings. So therefore, you've got to be in favor if you're really in favor of, of more abundant resources and more knowledge, you've got to be in favor of more people that have this freedom to innovate, discover, and share and consume knowledge. Knowledge also has this really interesting feature. When you consume it, you create more of it. We're really focused on this uh, wealth is really knowledge. As George Gilder, our friend, says, wealth is knowledge. So how does that work? So that's that's kind of your your answer to the Thanos thing. So we think that he's also part of this this culture that we're seeing this revival of this Malthusian thinking today with this climate crisis thing that, wow, we've, we've got too many people again. We've got we've to eliminate these people. When that's the only way he can really, and by the way, I've never seen the movie. So when you got me into it, I was like, wow, I'm going to have to watch this Avengers movie now. But, but to your point, he has to eliminate people to effectively, you know, kind of, you know, have the finality of his life and the, the kind of the pleasure to get what he, what he thinks is right. As though, by the way, Thanos is God, um, I might add. But so, so let me pivot a little bit because this is all happening, you know, post the Enlightenment, right? So um, you quote the French economist Nicolas uh, Badeau. Um, he argued that, quote, the productiveness of nature and the industriousness of man is without known limits, end quote. This is the thinking of the age of reason. Malthus comes around to argue that there are 
are these positive checks and preventative checks on population. Again, where it's really, you know, he's is directly aligning economic progress with population, right? That's really kind of the the two parts of his, his argument. And he says that like on the preventative checks, I quote your guys' book, he says, scholars generally interpret his statement on preventative checks as a veiled reference to prostitution, venereal disease, homosexuality, abortion, and birth control, okay? So it's kind of like I was taking all that in and I'm reading this and saying, okay, well, prostitution we do know is down, right? It's not what it was in the old world, right? I'm sure because of that venereal disease, I know it's spiking relative to the last 20 years right now, but again, relative to the old world, it's probably still down. But when it comes to obviously things like homosexuality, abortion, and birth control, those have never been bigger, right, in the culture is what I would argue. So I, so I guess, did we get the hope of commerce, right? In other words, exactly what Badeau was talking about when it comes to his productiveness, and yet we've just failed on sexuality, like the vision of sexuality to fulfill that progress. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I, I you know, I don't know really what to say about that. I, I think, you know, we've got these things going on in our culture that are driven by, I go back to this China's one child policy, sure. you know, leadership, leadership in China in the early seventies, they're reading all this stuff. They're reading limits to growth. They're reading population bomb. And they conclude, look, we've got to be able to, to stop population growth in China. And as a consequence, they claim that they've, they stopped 400 million lives. Um, so you clearly see, well, how is this going to manifest itself out into society where if you are really, you know, taken by this ideology of scarcity, then you're going to go to whatever measure you think is justified to prevent collapse. And, and we, we tend to argue that that's been the, it's been the most harmful social virus that we've ever, that we've had throughout history where people believe that we live in this, uh, this world of scarcity, that we have a zero-sum game, we've got to fight for all of these atoms. And it's like, look, you have to understand that resources are not just atoms, they're knowledge. And we don't compete with each other. Uh, where we make one another rich is by cooperating with one another. So let me follow up on that social disease because you point this out, and I, I, I think this, is, this holds true to today. So using Malthus, his children didn't reproduce, Okay. So it's like, ha, huh, you, duh, obviously Malthus's kids are not going to reproduce. So that kind of in, inherently begs this question on, if someone said, you know, Cole, why are you terribly optimistic that Gail and Marion will be proven right and Julian Simon will be proven right and this game keeps going on? I would say, well, because though, though we're going to have trouble, the people that have accepted this social problem die. Now, by the way, I don't, I don't want that for humanity, Gail, right? I don't want that for humanity. I want everyone to be, have many kids and all the benefits of my life later in life are accrued to me from their work and my work, et cetera. But isn't that kind of just a, I mean, it's a hard stop on some of these theories is that the people that are the most fervent die. Yeah, if only those ideas died with your posterity. Correct. Okay, we agree on that too. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so, so, so let's, let's, let's follow on that. You know, so his line dies off, but the spirit of fear right? Which I really consider Malthus, this spirit of fear and a sense of hopelessness didn't. Um, you note in the 2018 book, Population Bombed, and point out there's five points it pulls out of kind of the Malthusian ideas. It isn't, it isn't the antithesis of what the Enlightenment argued in Baudot's quote, for example. He's really just arguing the antithesis of Malthus. And I'll use a quote here just to kind of bring this out more. You wrote, you wrote, quote, the greater the population, the more likely it is that a creative mind will emerge to invent a solution to a pressing problem, i.e. 
increase supply to meet growing demand, end quote. I, you know, what you're really saying is it's a statement of outcomes. You know, you're saying that humans are lottery tickets on incredible things. Yes, exactly. So think about this. I always think about this. Steve Jobs, you know, uh, his biological father was born in Syria. So imagine if Steve had been born in Syria instead of uh, the U.S. and that he'd mm-hmm. been raised in, in Damascus instead of in Silicon Valley. What would, uh, what would our world be like today? I got to believe the world would be much different without Steve Jobs' vision and his ability to execute. So if you have one Steve Jobs in a population of every million people, and then you increase population to a billion people, that's a thousand times more Steve Jobs on the planet. So if you really want to have these creative individuals and you don't know who they are, you don't know where they're going to be born. What you do know, though, is your chances of having someone like that, of that caliber, is a function of the size of the population. And you've got to be willing to say, look, are we willing to have more people with the potential? Yeah, we're going to have more problems with more people, but we're also going to have the potential of people that can not only solve those problems, but advance uh, civilization uh, to the next level, you know, to a much higher level because of their their in, ingenious uh, innovations that they're able to give to the rest of us. Yeah, and you point out, I think this is a great point in the book that you, you and Marion do, is you point out how many atrocities are created from Malthusian thinking. And just to name a few, because you, you mentioned one, Ch- China's one-child policy, it was core argument was Malthusian policy. You also point out the Indian policies of the 1970s. I mean, we're talking about Gandhi's son, right? Everyone says such great things about Gandhi, and yet his son vasectomized 11 million men, put a million IUDs in in women. And then you have people like American, you know, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara saying, good job, this is awesome. Uh, If you go further down, some of what you're writing is, you know, welcome Hitler. You can use these Malthusian eugenics arguments to you know, effectively kill people. And when he says, well, why do you think you can do this? He turns and says, well, look what the Turks did with the Armenians. Um, in other words, it's like kind of like bad arguments layered on bad arguments with no one to kind of stop and say, hey, this is all just Malthusian problems that are manifesting themselves over and over again. Yeah, something that's really uh, interesting is when they had the Nuremberg trials for the Nazis after World War II, they asked them about their policies, and they said, well, we were just kind of following what the Americans were doing in the 1920s and 30s with their eugenics policies of trying to improve the species by eliminating uh, defective members of the species. Now, they define defective members. You know, we know how they define that. But sure. the point is, is once you accept this ideology, there are too many people, uh, then whatever you do to reduce that, uh, you are serving a moral purpose. So that fundamental assumption that's made that there are too many people, That's that flaw can lead to all kinds of, of tragic consequences. So we're hopeful that if people say, well, let's just look at the facts. And that, interestingly, uh, what happened to Julian Simon. He read Paul Ehrlich's book and he said, well, you know, your argument makes sense. Your model makes sense. Maybe what I should do, though, is I should go look at the facts. What has actually happened to the prices of all of these non-renewable things over, you know, as far as I can look back? And what he discovered is more people was correlated with 
uh, more abundancy. In other words, these prices kept going down and down. So real, real quick, on, I'm going to quote, I'm going to throw a quote out there because you're right. That, in fact, it's like you knew I was going there next. So I'm going to quote him real quick because you're, you're getting at kind of like when you pivot from like this hopelessness is an atrocity, it's a danger to humanity, I would argue. And you look at Julian Simon, Julian Simon said, quote, in the long run, the most important economic effect of population size and growth is the contribution of additional people to our stock of useful knowledge, end quote. So that's like you're going from a spirit of fear to Simon is just uttering a spirit of hope in comparison. Right, right. That's a good way to, to put that, that into contrast because you really said, look, you know, when human beings come to the planet, yes, they are dependent. They are going to consume resources, but they also come with two hands and 85 billion brain cells. They come with minds and creativity. They bring these great assets to the planet with them. Uh, and when you say, well, let's just reduce population, what you're also saying is let's reduce the number of Einsteins and Mozarts and Steve Jobs that we could also potentially have. Sure. So that part of the argument was never made clear. They, they looked at all of the costs of additional population, but they did not compare it against the other benefits. They did not subject this to economic analysis, which says you've got to look at all of the costs against all the benefits and see if there's a net benefit or net cost. That was not that was not conducted properly in our minds. And so you get these policies that are based on on flawed uh, uh, thinking and analysis. Well, I'm going to quote Simon again from your book because I just I find these arguments to be incredible. Um, he said, quote, that is, we need our problems, though this does not imply that we should purposely create additional problems for ourselves, end quote. So when, when I read that, what actually came to my mind is like, look at all these blessings we have. And yet you can also see this, you can see the seeds of our next problem, major problem. And it's to your point, it's not climate change. The biggest problem looking forward, and I think Elon Musk and the Pope have commented on this, uh, just to give some reference, is that we in 40 years might not have enough people. Why should we try to create our next problem, I guess is my question. <laughs> yeah, I think what Simon was, was saying is when he looked at the prices of things, he said, look, you'll have these temporary uh, challenges to that particular commodity. Some mm -hmm. kind of an event will occur and it'll make the price go up. Well, when the price goes up of something, four things happen. First of all, people use less of it. Yeah, it's more expensive. I'm going to use less of it. Secondly, uh, supply, people try to go find some more of that stuff. The third thing that happens is people try to find substitutes. And then the fourth thing that happens with some of these products is people will start to recycle those. Once those four things occur, what you'll notice is the price actually ends up being cheaper than before this crisis happened. Mm -hmm. And so you see, this, you see this trend line of these upward spikes, but then it settles down at a lower a lower price. And in many cases, because in this process of this problem, you have discovered a substitute for that problem. We look at, we look at copper, for example. Copper was this fundamental element that was necessary to wire the, the country with telephone cables. So you had to have copper to have a telephone infrastructure. Well, when the price of copper gets so high, is there an alternative to copper? Well, there's other metals, but if you really think outside the box, you, you got to think outside the, the current paradigm and think, is there something else we could use? 
you know, it's not copper that we love. It's communication that we're interested in. There's just something else we can use to communicate with. And that led to this innovation of fiber optic cables, where instead of using copper, you're using silicon sand to make these cables, and you're sending, instead of electrons, you're sending photons. So sure. these fiber optic cables come along, and they totally drop the price of communication drastically. Well, now what we see today is, you know, fiber optics, there is a price there. Is there an alternative to fiber optics? And yeah, there is. It's called wireless. So all of us today are using uh, wireless communication, and it's almost totally dematerialized. I mean, we're still using energy, but as we add more and more knowledge to our to our matter, you know, atoms and energy, they be, it, these things become smarter and smarter and more and more valuable. At the same time, we enjoy more abundance and uh, more utility at the same time. So fiber optic replaces copper. Wireless replaces fiber optics. What you're really doing is you're replacing these raw atoms with knowledge. And knowledge is really where the wealth is. So one of my favorite Simon rebuttals to uh, uh, to what was going on in his life was actually not any of what we would consider serious. Um, but you guys quote, um, he, you, you quote uh, that when he uh, was put in the Washingtonian magazine as one of the 25 smartest people in the December 93 edition, um, you wrote that quote, he commented that he would have preferred to be one of the 25 sexiest Washingtonians. Um, I, I find this very interesting because again, here we have Julian Simon, he's hopeful, he's optimistic about human progress. And yet here he is this sexual human being and kind of gets us back to that question of like progress and sexuality. Am I surprised that he wanted to be sexy and he loved human progress? No, I'd say they go hand in hand, but I, I but I, I just find that interesting that you guys noted that as a part of Julian Simon. He was, he was just a brilliant, clever, funny guy. And, uh, and he was this this happy person. I mean, he suffered terribly from depression in his life, and he was able to f- to figure out how to overcome that. But he also had this very optimistic view because he was familiar with the facts, and the facts really converted him from having this kind of pessimism to this this really abundant optimism. Once again, it was conditioned on. And he he makes this argument. You know, uh, our ultimate resource are young, spirited people that have this freedom to innovate. So as long as you have those things happening, you're going to advance. You're going to enjoy this progress. So yeah, he was just a wonderful individual. So so now that we understand Simon, can you teach us more about Paul Ehrlich? You you mentioned him earlier, but I just want to make sure all of our audience understand who Paul Ehrlich was. So Ehrlich, he was a biology professor at Stanford. And, uh, of course, uh, under biology, when you look at uh, populations of things that are subjected to uh, population increase where resources are fixed, the population dies out. So if you take some cockroaches or some rats and you put them into an environment and they, and they multiply, they eat up all the food and they all collapse. So he applied that, uh, he applied that analogy to human population and uh, made this conclusion: Hey, we're gonna we're gonna run out of resources, and everything's gonna blow up. And uh, you know that message in that book that he published in 1968 was very very popular. It sold millions of copies. It was translated into to lots of uh, other languages. He appeared on Johnny Carson, which was kind of this leading uh, talk show at the time, a number of occasions. So very popular guy and. Uh, so Simon reads that once again. Simon reads the book and uh, begins to start challenging uh, 
Ehrlich back. And it leads to this very kind of public debate. It really got real contentious. And, and finally, Simon throws up his hands and says, look, Paul, uh, let's bet. Uh, let's bet on the future. You pick any non-renewable uh, resource and any period more than a year, and if we don't have a war, uh, I'll bet you the price is going to go down. Sure. So Simon, so uh, Ehrlich picks actually five metals. He picked copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, and they put $1,000 on the table in 1980. And they said, well, whatever this basket of goods goes up uh, fl- adjusted for inflation, uh, the loser has to pay the other guy the difference. So that 10-year period, 1980 to 1990, uh, passes. It actually also happens to be the decade that had the largest increase in human population in history. 850 million people were born in that 10-year period. So you had this huge increase in population. Mm -hmm. During that same time, the average inflation-adjusted price of these five metals had dropped by 36%. So Ehrlich has to write Simon a check for like $576. So this became a, a very important kind of a uh, an event that occurred in economics. Like, well, what happened was, uh, and the argument was, well, uh, Simon was real lucky. Uh, the metals didn't uh, really uh, reflect what was truly happening. So it was just lucky. And uh, Simon offered to continue the bet and and Ehrlich decline. So that was kind of where our, where Marion, uh, Marion's study began is, well, if Simon, if we had another bet today, would, who would win that bet? And that's where Julie, or where Marion wrote this initial paper, where I, I read that and said, okay, well, maybe we should explore this to, to answer this question. Would he win the bet again? And the two challenges to the bet were, it only covered five commodities, and so we extended it from five to 50. We looked at, we added energy, we looked at food, we looked at other materials, we looked at other, other metals, and we said, well, let's look at these 50 different commodities. And then we extended the period from 1980 to 2018. So it's a 40-year period, basically a 38-year period versus, versus a 10-year period. And our analysis, our conclusions, we found that on the average, these prices, the time prices had fallen by 72%. At the same time, population went up by, uh, amazingly, 72%. Uh, it looks like every time you increase population by 1%, these time prices for everyone fall by 1%. Well, what explains that? Well, what explains that is the growth in knowledge. Let's see. Let's jump to the – I want to jump to the Simon Abundance Framework because I, I think your analogy of a piece of a, of, a, of a pie and a pie itself is – an interesting way to think about that framework. So first of all, uh, we recognize that we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with time, which means that you have a money price, which is expressed in dollars and cents, but you also have a time price that's expressed in hours and minutes. So if I'm earning $20 an hour and a pizza costs $20, that pizza costs me one hour or 60 minutes. So the question is, what is happening to that time price over time? Is it taking, is it, does it require you more or less time today to buy that pizza that it did yesterday or last year. So we begin by converting all these money prices to time prices. And then the next thing is we say, well, what, what, do we, what do we then look at in terms of the individual abundance that someone enjoys versus the population level abundance? Mm-hmm. And, and the way to think about that is, look, if, if uh, the price of something's $20 a day, and you have 10 people, but you double the population and the price doesn't change, what does that mean? Well, it means you figured out how to double 
the output of that product. So prices are much more important than the quantity of thing of things from an economic perspective is the price contains much more information than the quantity. When you walk into the store to buy a loaf of bread, what's more important to you? The number of loaves on the shelf or the price? Isn't it the price? Because the price is really reflecting this relative scarcity. So follow the price. It has more information. And that's another reason that there's been this kind of problem with with many of these econ- many of these forecasts because they're done from this engineering perspective where they're counting atoms they're trying to count quantities of things and then draw some conclusion about oh we're going to run out it's like well well what the price is going to tell you whether you're going to run out or not because the price will send signals to people in the market about what to do so the idea of the slice is is your slice of pizza getting larger or smaller and the slice of the pizza really is a function of how much time did it take you to earn the money to buy that slice. And if it costs you less and less time, you're enjoying greater and greater personal resource abundance. So everybody's slice is getting larger. At the same time, you have more people. So you're actually uh, – and, and the size of the pie is the size of the global resource you can think of global resource abundance as the size of the whole pizza, all of the slices. How big is it, every individual slice and how many slices do you have? Well, what we discover is, look, everybody's individual slices are getting larger, but we're also adding more slices. So this, this pie is growing two dimensions. And so global resources, and we, we, we kind of do some uh, quantifying of that, it looks like it's grown by around 500% over the last 38 years. So it's growing at 3 to 4% a year. Yeah, so, but the, the problem is at the same time that's going on, to your point earlier, we're negative by nature. We kind of like to have this surprisal. And the theory of social comparison would say that, yeah, Gail, my, my piece of the pie is getting bigger, but I know the guy next door to me that's got a bigger piece of pie than I do, and therefore I'm really unhappy about the pie. Well, that's why you've got to read you got to read Jordan Peterson's rule number four, and that goes back to who do you compare yourself to? To, to? you, mm-hmm. you know, do you you're better off to compare yourself to who you were yesterday instead of, instead of someone else, who someone else is today. When you compare yourself to who someone else is today, you can come away pretty depressed because you can always find somebody that's that's richer, that's younger, that's more handsome. You know, you're going to you're going to feel like a loser. But if you compare yourself to who you were yesterday and what he means by that is your perspective, instead of looking across at other people today, you need to look at what your life was like yesterday or your parents life or your grandparents life. And when you look at, at your world from that perspective, you can only come away just profoundly grateful for the lives that we have today relative to our parents and grandparents. That's where the, where the real inequality is, is look at what our parents and grandparents had compared to what we have today. And the other thing to add to that is the fact that they sacrificed their consumption so mm-hmm. we could have more today. So they, they not only lived with less, they made greater sacrifices so that we could have more. That's the, the big inequality that really, I think, leads you to, to really just say, look, we have more people on the planet with more prosperity, with more potential for creating prosperity for everyone else than we've ever had throughout, throughout history. To your point on social comparison, I, uh, Charlie Munger says, 
envy is the worst of sins because you just can't have any fun with it. Uh, so so let, let's, let me pivot a little bit because I think something that is never said, again, this goes under the heading of like, I've never heard someone say this, and I'll quote from your book again. Uh, Greg Clark noted, um, coming out of your book, quote, industrialized economies save their best gifts for the poorest, end quote. I- explain how the progress that we're talking about and Julian Simon's framework has actually helped the poorest the most. Okay, well, let's, let's go back and take a look at China. <clears throat> 1980, uh, average uh, person in China is making 16 cents an hour. And for the time it took them to earn their daily food, say it's 10 pounds of uh, wheat or rice, it was about a, a, about $1.32. And so they spent about eight hours a day working to just earn their money to feed themselves. Well, by 2018, Chinese income had increased to $9.18 an hour. So the time price had fallen by 98%. So the time it took me to, to work to buy one pound of rice in 1980, I now get 52 pounds. That's just happened in the last, well, from 1980 to 2018 in China. So imagine if you think of the time abundance now that someone in China has, they get almost eight hours now of more time. Not only are they can they feed themselves in about nine minutes relative to eight hours, mm-hmm. but they, they also have all of this extra time. Now they've got almost eight hours of time that they can devote to other things, uh, learning, leisure, uh, you know, pursuing uh, other creative activities. So uh, when the price of some fundamental basic food goes down, it's, it's the poor that benefit the most because they're the, their time, a large fraction of their time is devoted to just earning the money to feed themselves. So if you can begin to lift people out of poverty by taking care of these fundamental physiological needs on this Maslow hierarchy where people mm-hmm. can then start lifting themselves out of this poverty, they turn from becoming this, con, uh, you know, consumed with trying to just stay alive to now they can participate in this creative economy. So it's the poor that really get these primary benefits when these, these basic commodities become so much more abundant. And that's what we observed has happened. You and I, look, if, if prices fell by, if our basic food fell by, by 50% tomorrow, yeah, it would be, it would be nice but uh, that wouldn't really give us a lot more time. Uh, we'd spend less time earning the money to buy food, but, uh, but uh, you know, because we, we don't spend a lot of time doing that today already. But somebody in China, that, that could have a dramatic effect upon them, China or India. And to follow on that, you point out this, and I'd never thought about this way, but it's, it's completely right. Um, it's, it's not income equality that we're debating. It's time inequality. It's the time to get the goods we want. Yeah, we did a little analysis on that. It's really time. We think time is a much better way to measure inequality than income because, look, we all have this perfect equality of time. We all get 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what do you get to spend your 24 hours on versus what do I get to spend my 24 hours on? What kind of choices do you have? What do you have to do to sustain your life in that 24 hours? And then what's the other time that you get? If you can take someone in China that spent eight hours a day just earning the money to buy their food, and now they spend less than 10 minutes a day, you've given them eight hours. So this compression of time. So say somebody in 1960, in 1980 in the U.S., 
spends an hour a day earning their uh, money to buy their food. But in China, they spend eight hours a day, and the time price of uh, food falls by 90%. Now, uh, the, the amount of time that you and I both take is much closer. Instead of having this eight-hour spread between an American and someone from China, you now have uh, a one-hour spread or less. So what we're able to have with our own personal time abundance, that really is this measure. Because once again, think about your life versus Elon Musk's life. Yeah, he's he's got he's 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 got a billion times more income than I do, but he doesn't have a billion times more time. And no matter how much money you have, you can't buy time. So it also has this interesting features. You can't counterfeit it. You can't uh, inflate it. Uh, we have this equality. So our pursuit really needs to be thinking: How do we give people more time to get on learning curves to discover and create and share more knowledge? Well, yeah, if you use the Simon Abundance framework, though, and you use the, the, the pie analogy, Gail, couldn't you also say that, in effect, what, what you're saying is completely true, and by not producing children, we are reducing the total number of hours, which is the truest scarce commodity. By, yeah, by not producing more, <laughs> more innovation creators, that's really what you're, you do when you say, well, if we're going to reduce population, you're going to reduce... Uh, the ability to create more people that that have the time to go out and discover new knowledge. Is that really what you want to have happen? So let's, because you, you touched on this earlier. So there's Ehrlich's bet from 80 to 90 with the five commodities. And then you guys take your, you know, you take your personal resource abundance model out to the 50 commodities that you analyzed from 1980 to 2018. Can you just kind of give a flavor of what you guys found in that work when you guys did that? Yeah, so we look at these 50 different commodities. We found that on the average, they fell by uh, about 72%. Yeah, the average was right about 70, uh, 71.6%. Mm-hmm. And what that means is for the time it takes you to buy, think about walking into the store and everything's 75% off. What's that mean? Yeah. Well, it means, for, it means for the time it took me to buy one, now I get four. So a 72% drop means that now you get 3.52. So your personal abundance increased by, you go from 1 to 3.52 units, that means your personal abundance increased by 252%. Uh, so that's on a personal level. And then if you also consider, wow, population during this same period <laughs> increased uh, by almost 70%. Sure. So not only is everybody's slice getting bigger by 252%, you have 70% more people. So this pie is getting larger in two dimensions. And so just to give you, you know, we've got these 50 commodities. Uranium falls by 87%. The one that fell the least was zinc. It fell by 21%. But you've got mm-hmm. cotton falls by 80%. Uh, barley falls by 67%. Um, so you're experiencing, and part of it is, Cole, if you're, if you're experiencing a 3 to 4% drop in prices over a year, you don't really notice it. But if you can hit 3.5% growth a year, every 20 years, you've doubled abundance. So we don't notice this, this increase in abundance because it happens just a, this, this little continuous small amount each day. But that's why it's so important to look back over time and say, well, what 
were things a lot you know, 20 years ago, 40 year ago, years ago, 100 years ago. When you'd look at that perspective, it's like, wow, we've gotten on this compounding curve that has made things so much more abundant that we don't really notice. Over a 20-year period, if something is growing at 3.5%, it doubles. So what would you rather have? Prices go, um, <clears throat> things become 3.5% more abundant every every year, or every 20 years, everything's 50% off. Well, if we woke up today and everything was 50% off, it would be, we'd have this global celebration. Look, we've everything's 50% off. And everything is 50% off relative to where it was 20 years ago. So that's the other kind of a, a bit of a challenge is that perspective. We have these, these periodic big booms in innovation where, where wow, uh, we get twice as much today than, than we did yesterday. You know, the tech, the tech world kind of experiences that with DNA uh, sequencing and other things that are happening out there where we see these big headline innovations occur. But we're also seeing innovation with wheat and eggs and uh, uh, bananas, um, this continuous uh, price, time price decline. So look at the prices, see what they're telling you. And they're saying, wow, we're enjoying phenomenal abundance. Uh, things have never been more abundant than today. So I just got to say this for our audience. Um, uh, a, and I, th- I think I said this to Gail before we started, uh, A is that I think this their, their work in this part of the book, and I, I would read every example they have. They have, um, they, they use the World Bank 37 commodities from 1960 to 2018. They use David Jack's 40 commodities from, two, uh, from 1900 to 2018. They use also Jack's 26 commodities from 1850 to 2018. Um, the point is that no matter what period you look at, the time price model and the personal resource abundance that Gail's talking about, it, it just holds true. And Gail, what I also found really interesting about your research was that it was true for the poor, it was true for blue collar workers, and it was true for people that went from being that unskilled poor to blue collar that whole time in every single case. So that the the model holds true. And I think the one that I had to laugh at the most, by the way, since I live in Phoenix and we have, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona, and people kind of personify Scottsdale, Arizona with a particular kind of crowd, um, was the reason why I'm seeing more lip injections and boob jobs is because to your guys' research, they're just more abundant. <laughs> yeah, they become cheaper. You know, when, when I always say when you, when you go on a cruise and the guy sitting next to you is a plumber, it's like, what's the deal? <laughs> It looks yeah. like life is getting abundant for everybody, you know. And and I love plumbers, but it's like they're they're enjoying this prosperity as well for for all these things that that that. And I hate to use the word trickle down. It doesn't trickle down. It flows down in a gusher. I mean, when you can have this abundance that that everybody now gets a smartphone. Everybody on the planet gets one. We've got 8 billion people on the planet, and 7 billion of them have smartphones. Why is that? It's because this $1,000 smartphone you can buy for $50 today. The utility of the smartphone, of the iPhone 3 and 4, you can buy one of those for 50 bucks a day or less. And the time price of that is, you know, you work a couple days, you get a smartphone, and you work a couple more days, you get this access to the internet with. Uh, wireless service. It hooks you into all this information that everybody has stored in all of these uh, locations. And then you can talk to anybody. We are on the, on the precipice, really, of this, of this opportunity to create and discover 
and share knowledge like we've never, ever had before. So just very hopeful that people once, you know, realize where we are, what our potential is, and then we've got to keep these key elements in place to allow this process to do its magic for the rest of us. People have to have this freedom to innovate. They have to, well, they have to have time, first of all. And it looks like people are getting more and more time every day to do other things besides trying to just work to sustain their lives. So you have this time abundance that's happening. You have this resource abundance where things are becoming more and more abundant. You have this this association abundance where I can meet more and more people. I mean, you and I, Cole, would have never met without the internet. And so... So all of these things now are giving people opportunities to connect to other people and to discover knowledge together in this cooperative way. I really, I kind of think about why this happened. And uh, I think back to what is the golden rule about? The golden rule is you treat someone the way you want to be treated. And what it means (laughs) is that if you treat somebody with respect and dignity, they will, they will, uh, they'll go innovate. And both of you will get rich. If you want to enjoy the abundance of this planet, allow your fellow human being the freedom and be respectful of their time and their, their, their uh, efforts to try to create something of value. So you, you go on to further model uh, and demonstrate the personal resource abundance where you, you uh, show the personal resource abundance against population growth and you have this come up with these boxes and you compare them over time too, which I think is an incredibly, for the visual learners in the room, it puts all this together really simply. But so let me, let me kind of ask another analogy of thinking about those boxes that you guys so, that are just so great to look at and understand in your book. If I look at that, if that those graphs, in effect, I think about society as like a, a C corporation, right? Because we're using commerce and human ingenuity, which is what businesses benefit from. So we're, we're talking about a C corporation and uh, obviously human hours, whether it be people or to your point, the time they have individually to do all the other things of life outside of work um, is kind of like the revenue, right? That's, the, that's what grows the business is the revenue side. And in effect, the personal resource abundance is the profit side, right? That's the profit side uh, of, of the C-Corp of humanity. I guess my only question though is, isn't in effect what the Malthusians are arguing is that we can reduce revenue and cut our way to prosperity to make more profits, and, and yet we can't find that in business? I know, I like the way you're thinking about, about that. Uh, you know, how is wealth created? It fundamentally is a, a product of human beings. And you think, well, I'm gonna be more profitable with fewer fewer human beings. It goes back to Musk, Elon Musk's argument. There's too few human beings. There's not enough humans. Sure. He says that's the greatest threat that we have. And why does he say that? Because we're not going to be able to grow revenues and profits really in this function. Have you created something valuable in your discovery of new knowledge? Uh, you've got to have markets that people can take their uh, products to and test out to see if is this really creating value or not. And and back to your idea that as we grow this revenue, we grow human beings, are we going to be able to actually see profits grow as well? Um, you gotta, you got to look at this profitability as a function. Are people able to, to respond to new knowledge that appears? And where does that appear? It appears in markets in the mm. form of prices. And that essential feature of an economy 
of having a price that's free to move up and down to send signals to everybody else about what to do, it's also a key essential feature that we need to be able to create wealth because it, it tells us what new knowledge is really valuable and what new knowledge may be less valuable. Well, to your point, the, per, the, the personal resource abundance, aka the profit, grows at a quicker rate than the revenues, which is just, you know, it, it is, it's the eighth wonder of the world, like Einstein said. It's compounded interest playing out in front of our eyes. Yeah. Well, it's more people, but people that have more time to innovate. So sure. that's kind of the key thing is we think abundance is a real simple function of population and freedom, the freedom to innovate. So if you have more people, that potentially could create more abundance. But if those people aren't free to innovate, it's not going to create more abundance. If you have more freedom, that potentially can create abundance. But if you put both of those together, that's where you really start to see this accelerating curve. It doesn't take, I mean, a little bit of freedom can really create a lot of abundance. Um, We're hopeful that this kind of happens in India. Got the same population going on there, but it's a much younger population Julian Simon said it was young people that had freedom that really is where most of these innovations come from. So you have young people that have freedom and that are not hungry. If that's the case, you can expect innovation to start happening. So you, you uh, I have to ask you this question just because this is the only part of the book that I, I was like out of nowhere. I felt like I got hit by a punch that was unexpected. So um, there's a section of the book that you talk about kind of like the evolutionary process of man, Okay. But, but kind of one of the core assumptions of that process is that like a protein soup was hit by lightning to cause a kickoff of that process or like a big bang. And I'll, I'll just, let's just title it as who knows what happened. I'll call it a random event. Your research with Marion argues not for randomness, but a plan. Like you're pointing out the factors of that plan that are coherent and based on, you know, the, the system that houses them, the literacy of that population, the ability to have freedoms, et cetera. I would say that Malthus and his followers are more the random crowd. Like, oh, there was randomly a spike in commodities and that just continued on randomly. So, so I guess, how do you go through this such coherent thinking? And then you're like, and by the way, evolution happened. Yeah, I <laughs> want to blame Marion for that. But, I, you know, I can't blame Marion for that. Uh, what I would say is, look, Darwin uh, put these ideas on the table. And okay. people have tried to take his ideas and apply them to an economy. And there's certain uh, certain ideas that I think do lend themselves to understanding how an economy works, this idea of natural selection. Sure. Well, in an economy, you've got uh, markets that are selecting for things that are valuable and things that are more and less val- valuable. The other part of his arguments is that these changes occur randomly. That's where where I would depart. And I would say, no, these are not random Innovations. These are intentional uh, uh, things that are produced as a consequence of, of an intentional, intelligent individual that's attempting to create value. That's where the Darwin uh, metaphor fails in terms of an economy. That's my opinion. Okay. Uh, but I think it's, it's important to, to recognize that, look, is there variation in products? Yeah, there is. Is it, are, are they selected? Yeah, they are. Those things are true about markets, but fundamentally we're dealing with human beings that are doing this creative activity. It's not random and it's human beings. It's not cockroaches or rats. Human beings innovate. Uh, ants, these other species don't. And that's once again where I think uh, Ehrlich made his mistake, where Thanos made his mistake. If Thanos had read our book, he would have used his uh, his glove with the five... Uh, 
five stones to go out and try to increase life on the, in the universe, not reduce it. He would have recognized that abundance is a function of more life, not less life. So human life, human creativity, core of our model says human beings go out and design things. They take risks. They, they, res, they respond to their creativity. If they have the freedom to create, they'll put something on the table for the rest of us to then judge, you know. What do you think about what I've done here? It's this act, as Gilder would say, it's this act of giving. I'm going to devote my energy and time and creativity to to producing something. Then I'm going to put it on the table, and I'm going to let everybody judge whether or not what I've created is of value or not. But the thing that most quickly aligns with, with your guys' framework is the biblical definition, which is be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and have dominion. And, and that's, by the way, that's a blessing to all your works point. Yeah, absolutely. And what it says is, look, if you give people the freedom to be fruitful and multiply, they will replenish the earth with their creative act. Correct. Man limits the freedom though, right? To your point, man limits freedom. I agree. And, but God never did. So what we're saying is if we use our God-given freedom, not man's created freedom, um, this will happen. Absolutely. I mean, the evidence, the empirical evidence suggests, (laughs) the empirical evidence suggests when you have more people with more freedom, everybody benefits. Agree. So let me, let me jump in. So you get later in the book and you're talking about just the benefits of this. And I just love this. You talk about life expectancy and just the benefits and the numbers there. That was just wonderful data. Um, I loved your story about people in the third world being picky over the clothes that they receive and use from the first world, right? We're so blessed in humanity today. No one says this, that even in the third world country, they might not like that shirt. They like this one instead. They like the brand names. They don't like the ones they don't. So just no one says that. No one says, oh gosh, we're so blessed. Look at the problems we have. This is great. I'm going to bring up one other idea. And I think this is paramount. And, and this is like, if you guys go write another book, uh, this would be like, I, I want this battle to be waged in a Thanos-like fashion because this is where it is. So you, I'm going to quote your book. Quote, personal hygiene changed drastically so that the commoners of the late 19th century and early 20th century, and this is coming out of David Landis's book, over the 20th century often lived cleaner than the kings and queens of a century earlier, end quote. The crux of the argument being promulgated in universities and certain settings of society is, hey, here's the deal, young kids that are of virile you know, uh, birthing age, if you don't have children, you'll be wealthier. Now, here's the catch. Kings and queens, I'll call the wealthy class of a prior era. What your research argues, though, is you might be wealthier, but the quality of your life might be far worse than it would be if you had had children. Yeah. I mean, and, and once again, you you will be wealthier for 10, 20 years, but but uh, then you're going to be poorer, and everybody else on the planet is going to be poorer. So think in, think in context, think in consequence, think about the future. Now, if a person chooses not to have children, you know, they, they get to make that choice. But when, you, when they make that choice, what they're really telling the rest of the world is that you're you make not going to be as rich. You make, you make right. that investment. I don't need to. Yeah. You, you, you know, I, I have seven kids, and a lot of people go, seven kids? It's like, well, what, what's the deal? It's like, you know, we made that choice because we felt like, look, we, we think that these children are really going to uh, make a contribution to the world and they're going to make our lives better off, but they're going to make everybody else's lives better off as well. So 
making this commitment and this investment in the future and, and having children and grandchildren really change your orientation from the present to the future. And so the culture's kind of time orientation, too, is really a function of what their population is doing. You go to Japan and there's more people over 65 than under 15. They're facing this huge demographic challenge. Well, if you have no children or grandchildren, are you really interested in the future, you know, and innovating to try to make life better? Maybe not so much. So there's something else there going on about what do children do to you? They make you think about the future and think about how to make the future better for them. So let me give you an example. So let's say we had to go back to 1970, okay? If you were a hundred millionaire in 1970, you had it good. You were wealthy for that time. But I mean, interestingly, I'd rather be me today, not worth a hundred million dollars, um, living my life because I actually have a better life than that wealthier person. Now, people would say in inflation-adjusted terms, they're they're far wealthier than you are today. And I say, yeah, but my life's better than theirs. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, what would you what would I have to pay you, Cole, to never use your cell phone and the internet again? Oh, I that was the only example I could pull. I thought, gosh, that hundred millionaire didn't have an iPhone, right? And by the way, yeah. you, you could have had two trillion dollars then and you could not have created that technology. Right. And the issue too is in order to make that iPhone really work, you got to have everybody else on the planet have one as well, right? Correct. So even though if you could have bought one, you know, nobody else, you couldn't, couldn't have called anybody, everybody else that's making apps, you know, that, that needed to have a huge market. Adam Smith talked about this idea that if you want to be able to have creativity and innovation, you got to have a lot of people because the larger the market, the easier it is now to recover your fixed cost. And you can also find niches. So if a, a new drug costs a billion dollars to develop, but then it's only a dollar a pill, once you've figured out the recipe, then it only costs you a dollar a pill, well, what would it cost then? What should you charge for that pill? Well, it depends on your market size. If you've got a billion people, you can sell it for $2 a pill. If you've only got 1,000 people, then it's going to be much, much higher. So a larger market not only creates more entrepreneurial talent, it creates more customers for you. So these two things have this virtuous uh, feedback that, that allows this wealth creation process to grow exponentially. And to highlight that, I mean, I, here I sit in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, here we are stock market investors for our investors, you know, around the world where within a week I can go see, you know, 90% of the population to serve them um, and talk with them and converse. And that's never been possible in the history of the world within a week to do what we do, right? So I, I totally agree. So two, two words for you, Cole and Phoenix, air conditioning. Yeah, oh yeah, no, you, no, by the way, to, 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 if I didn't mention this already, uh, Gail, Gail and Marion have a whole section on the personal resource abundance of air conditioning. And I've seen a lot of other programming that, you know, the Southern US would not be populated today unless for that personal resource abundance taking place. So I, I highly recommend everyone uh, you know, appreciate at, at 115 here in Arizona in the summer, uh, the blessing that they explain their book. So not to be a Debbie Downer, Gail, but uh, since we're getting closer to the end of our discussion, I'm going to pivot to the more depressing part of the book, which is, um, can you explain eco-anxiety and how damaging this is today? Eco-anxiety is really this consequence of this obsession with climate, climate change. 
that uh, look, uh, we're gonna we're facing this uh, cl- potential climate catastrophic climate change, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio uh, Cortez AOC she makes this claim: Is it okay to have children? We're facing all these problems, and so you sense that there's these young people. Like I say, when I go to Thanksgiving, it's not my uncle Eddie that's that's a downer. It's it's my niece that's 17 years old that's been mm-hmm. kind of hit with this this culture and this media that's obsessed with, you know, fossil fuels are destroying the planet. People throw stuff on paintings to try to grab attention to this. Wow, we're destroying the planet, and and that obsession with this this. One, is it really based, what kind of facts do you have to show that this is going to happen? Or is it strictly a model? And if it's a model, you know, any model can be true without data. Any, any theory can be true without data. And, and if you're basing your life on this theoretical or this hypothetical model that more people are going to cause this climate temperature to elevate and it's going to destroy the planet, therefore, I mean, what is the therefore? Therefore, don't have kids because their life is going to be worse off than yours. That is, is what we argue in the book is false, false in the assumption, false in the empirical. Uh, you don't have a theory that really supports that, and you don't have the empirical evidence to, to, to make that claim. Uh, beyond Lomborg's great books on, on climate are, is the climate changing? Yeah, climate's always changed. Is it getting warmer? Yes, it's getting warmer. But is that going to be a problem? Yeah, there's going to be problems with a warmer climate. But there's also benefits of a warmer climate. A lot more people die because of excess cold than excess heat. Why are people in Phoenix? Because we've been able to innovate around this climate and extend our life expectancies and have more time abundance to to do all of these other things. Why is that? Because human beings have been free to innovate and to grow knowledge. And that is what's lifting all of us. So young people, as you are subjected to this onslaught of of, uh, climate uh, crisis, put it in context. Ask yourself, if this is really the case, why are we so prosperous today? Why is it that as the climate has increased, life expectancies increased? Why is it that people around the planet have been able to innovate and adapt around climate? Is it going to increase? Yeah, if it does. But look, I live in Hawaii. I can go back to Utah and there is a 50 degree swing in the temperature. But people in both parts of the world in Hawaii and Utah both get to enjoy 70 degree weather. Why is that? Because we've been able to adapt and innovate around it. So the challenge of a, of a one degree increase in the planet, it's like, uh, yeah, maybe a problem, but I trust human beings, our fellow human beings, we're going to be able to lift one another out of these challenges. Well, yeah, and to follow on that, my, my 13-year-old daughter came home from school and in her science class, um, she was teacher-splained, is the term I'll use, that within 20 years here in Phoenix, Arizona, Uh, we won't be able to live here because we won't have any drinking water, okay? And that was what she was scared into hearing. Um, So she came home, uh, to your point, Gail, and I gave her the facts. I said, Isabel, do you know that we have, we use less water today than we did in 1957 here in the Valley? Now, why? Yeah, Isabel, go back and ask your teacher if she wants to bet. 
Yeah, I know exactly. So that was my thinking too. Um, most of the pollution after the Industrial Revolution wasn't industrial pollution. It was agricultural pollution. In Phoenix, we used a lot of water because it was mostly agricultural in 1957. And that's the biggest use of water in society. So um, you guys point out that like, you know, animal husbandry and all that other kind of stuff beyond agriculture where was all the pollution was, you know, uh, post the industrial revolution. So I, I kind of, I mean, I, when I read that, I literally told myself, Gail, so you're saying it's horse shit in effect, right? That's what causes the real pollution. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually lived in Phoenix for a couple of years and, you know, 20 years ago, people were saying the same thing. We're going to run out of water in 20 years. It's like, well, how can we double population and we still have plenty of water. If we've got plenty of water on the planet, the problem is some of it doesn't taste that good. You can desalinate it. The price of desalination is, is dropped dramatically yep. and you can move it. And so if you have a price mechanism that signals, you know, the relative scarcity of things, things will resolve themselves. If you really think we're running out of water, how much water do you have stored in your basement? Yeah. I don't think you do. Yeah. And uh, once, once again, you know, as professors, we get away with being able to say all kinds of things. And we're never really held accountable for that. And the beauty of the, the Simon Ehrlich bet is Julian Simon held Ehrlich accountable for what he claimed was going to happen. And when you do that, suddenly people start to really think, is this really going to happen? Or is this a theoretical model that I'm afraid of? Have I really done the science on this? And is it science or is it an ideology? Be very careful that that what you're being told or what you're reading is is really uh, based on some empirical evidence. If that was true, if that was really true that we were going to run out of water, why haven't we run out already in Phoenix? Why is Phoenix there today? It's well, so because you, of innovation. And you, and you and you touch it. So you quote Ernst Haeckel's argument where he wanted to replace monism. Uh, you know, with Christianity, like he wanted to swap those two things. I mean, doesn't the eco-anxiety just argue that he's been pretty successful in the long run at, at doing that? Yeah, it's an really, you know, the thing about human beings is we're very innovative, but we're also very emotional. And we can be, we can be influenced with these uh, very emotional images. Uh, it's really images that make these arguments today. I can take photographs of places that look terrible and, and say, look, the ocean is being filled with plastic. It's like, okay, we've got a picture of uh, lots of plastic here uh, sitting in this body of water. If yeah, it leads, it bleeds. There, yeah, exactly. We, we have to recognize that media is in the business of making money. How do you make money? You get attention. How do you get attention? You frighten people. And, and people are much more attentive when they're worried about the rattlesnake in the bushes than thinking, oh, it's just a rabbit. So mm -hmm. uh, you, you also have to recognize that there is a motivation from those who are presenting this, uh, this stuff to young people today that, uh, that is, not, is not pure. Well, so uh, one more thing that I walked away thinking from your book, Gail, um, urban farming I consider a damnation, okay? Um, I think back to like people, you know, farming around their home. And I mean, I just think of like the possible disease passing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I think of it as, as a time price issue. Why are they doing that? Their time's worth so much more than getting that egg out of that dang chicken. And, and um, 
So I just look at that is is like is that just an example of kind of the foolish romanticization of the past? Like, oh, back when we got our own eggs, we were so much better off. No, you you you're wasting your time. You know, as human beings, we have to have this sense of, uh, do I feel good about myself? Mm-hmm. What can I do to make myself feel that I'm doing something good? Sure. And you can you can feel good, but not do good. Uh, and and much of this, uh, those kinds of things urban farming, I'm going to grow my own, my own wheat, my backyard. You can do that and you can feel good about that. You can signal a virtue that, that you're, you're doing something to save the planet. But in reality, it's like, no, that you look at your opportunity costs, what else you could be doing with your time and resources. And you're really making a decision to use those uh, resources. You're burying your talents. You're not growing them. Wait, and you're you're giving you're giving up your scarcity, which is time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one more line that you had in the the last chapter there, um, and this is probably my favorite line of the book because I think this gets to the core disagreement um, between you know why your model and Julian Simon's model for looking at the world versus what we know today in the culture that's on the other side. Um, you, you you said quote in this secular religion. God is replaced by nature and the priesthood is replaced by scientists who are tasked with interpreting the natural order of things, end quote. In other words, we've swapped, say, the Catholic Church making us do all kinds of things outside the Bible for a group of people that don't necessarily have our best interest in heart in this religion we've now kind of co-opted into. So um, and I, I thought that was a wonderful way of understanding what we've done. We've just literally swapped one for the other. And, and, but one I think has more hope and the other has a lot of fatalist attitudes. Yeah. I, I don't want to, uh, to say anything about our, our Catholic uh, brothers and sisters and their, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that, the that's planet, Catholic but, people today. Yeah. yeah I yeah, agree with you. I but, totally agree with you. But, but what I would say is, look, uh, if, if you have this, uh, if you can leverage people's sense of how do I find meaning in life? And religion historically, particularly Christianity, has given people this sense of, I do have a meaning and purpose, and I have this divine kind of uh, destiny and nature about myself. And uh, if, if that is taken out of the culture, people will continue to seek meaning in, in their lives. And if, if meaning then is put on the table as, I'm going to somehow save the planet— and the planet now becomes this ideal thing that I'm attempting to try to protect and save. And your meaning in life is derived from how well the abstract planet is doing. Then you can you can see how people can get caught up with this because it can be very satisfying emotionally that look at what I'm doing to save the planet. It is it has a religious meaning element of a moral uh, self view that uh, religion historically kind of offered, but it's this new kind of a religious theological uh, meaning that people can, can now give themselves. To your point, we, we have to worship something ultimately. So the last thing I was going to ask you, Gail, because you had so many good book references. I wrote down so many books out of this, and I, it was just like a cornucopia of books to kind of put on my list. So I wanted to ask you the question, what are you currently reading or what books did you recently buy that you're excited to read? Well, one book that I really like is a book by a guy named um, Andrew McAfee. I think it's More for Less. And he goes through and analyzes a lot of these same things that we have done. 
And what he's really saying is we're, we are, he calls it, we're, we're entering this dematerializing stage. We call it, you know, in terms of this ratio of how much knowledge and how much atoms do you have this? I always think about is the bits versus the atoms. How much knowledge mm-hmm. is being added to atoms? And he says we're, we're just facing where we're using fewer and fewer atoms to create more and more value because we're creating more and more knowledge. And so he, he goes through all these examples that are fantastic, uh, this empirical evidence. And then one of the chapters, he puts $100,000 on the table to bet anybody sure. about where we're going to be in 2029. And it's like he's kind of doing the Simon Ehrlich thing again. If you don't believe this is going to happen, bet me. So uh, that's a that's a great book. Um, you know what else have I I've been reading? Uh, Beyond Lomborg's new new stuff. His is also really good because once again, this climate crisis put it into context. If we're going to devote resources to trying to advance humanity, where should we spend that money? Sure. Are there places where we can spend it that we're going to get a much better return? than spending it on this alternative. And he lays out a case, look, if we want to help humanity, this is a place to do it. The other book is Alex Epstein's, uh, Epstein's book on um, a fossil future. Um, that's also a great book about what are fossil fuels, what have they done for us, what do we need uh, going forward? If we really want to go into this nuclear uh, nuclear age where we really need to, to shift from fossil fuel to uranium, uh, we're going to have to have fossil fuel to d- accomplish that. In other sure. words, uh, what have, what's it done for us? What can it do for us in the future? So those are those are three great books that I think if you're interested in the econ stuff and the climate stuff, in the uh, energy stuff, take a look at those three. Well, this has been uh, all too much fun, Gail. I probably could just go on for hours and hours and hours and and um, I skipped a bunch of things in my notes because we had too much fun on the things we did talk about. Um, let's see. So I, I really appreciate having you on and, and thank Marion for me for your guys' great work. For our audience, go out and buy a copy of Super Abundance by Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley. You will walk away being hopeful of the benefits of all the people around you. You will also be praying that you see many more new people in the world to create the great benefits of the future to your life. For our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeedcap.com. That's podcast at smeedcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeedcap. Remind me, Gail, what, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, G Pooley. At, at G Pooley. For Mary and his is at Human Progress. Right. Yeah, both awesome. of those great. Human Progress, yeah, that's great. You'll like that. Perfect. Reach out to us or them there. Uh, Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.